they're, they're great. But the clutches, uh, when you work those clutches a lot, just ask anyone who runs police training, uh, the clutches kind of become a weak link there. But but they can do it. They can do it. And they're heavy, they're heavy but they're fun. And that would be a cool thing to do. There there are some reroutes. The, the deep sand is going to be really, really hard. You know, that's the get a big, heavy bike in there in that deep sand. That was the voice of adventure rider instructor Bill Dragoo. And this is Ted Keller, your host here on the Motorcycle Man podcast. And this is episode 271. Today's conversation is with Bill Dragoo of Dragoo Adventure Rider Training. If you have ever had any interest at all of getting off-road on an adventure bike, the first thing you should do is consider some training. As with any motorcycle, proper training will go a long way to enhance your enjoyment and your safety while taking part. Uh, the Motorcycle Man Podcast is brought to you by Scorpion Helmets. They offer the high-quality, innovative motorcycle helmets and technical apparel at an incredible value. To learn more, you go to scorpionusa.com. And Shinko Tires, they have a tire to suit your needs and riding style without breaking your bank account. So go to shinkotireusa.com and tell them that the Motorcycle Man sent you. Wild Ass Seats, hey, you can improve your comfort and ability to stay in the saddle longer with a cushion from Wild Ass Seats. So if you're tired of those painful pressure points and fatigue, go to wild-ass.com and get your cushion today. For the best in casual riding gear for men and women, there's only one place you should be going, and that is Tobacco Motorwear. Visit them at TobaccoMotorwear.com, and our listeners will get 10% off your order when you use that coupon code MOTOMEN. Your safety is worth it. I wear Tobacco Motorwear every time I ride. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Motorcycle Men Podcast. Joining me tonight, all the way from, where you're from again? Norman, Oklahoma, the dead center of the universe, according to my mom. Perfect. Uh, Mr. Bill Dragoo uh, from Dragoo Adventure Riding Training, or DART. Bill, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for having me on here, Ted. I'm so glad you can make it. I don't often have adventure people on the show. But I think it's good. Seeing how Harley Davidson is now expanding into the adventure market with the new Pan America, which will be released next month, uh, this is a good opportunity for those people who want to get some training to talk to somebody like you. But before we get into that, why don't you tell us a little bit about your motorcycle self and what you do? Well, I actually have a Harley Davidson, so uh, maybe that uh, qualifies me to be at least be on the show and not be <laughs> shunned too badly. Uh, my wife and I uh, took our first date on a Harley Dyna Sport that uh, we just resurrected recently after a 13-year hiatus. But, uh, uh, yeah, I forgot the question. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us what you do and um, yeah. your motorcycle self. That's it. Well, so I, I own and operate DART, Dragoo Adventure Rider Training. And as uh, you might guess, it's based in Norman, Oklahoma. Um, I'm also a writer. I write for a number of motorcycle magazines, uh, Roadrunner, uh, Adventure Motorcycle, or, uh, let's see, or Adventure Rider Magazine, Adventure Motorcycle Dual Sport News, Oklahoma Today. I've written for Arkansas Publications, Overland Journal, uh, Outdoor by Four, and uh, I don't know, I have to start writing down and seeing how many I've already duplicated there, but uh, there are several that uh, my wife and I both write for. 
So adventure is kind of our thing. We like to explore and to tell people about our explorations. Okay. So it keeps you busy, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. Uh, we have a couple of rent properties. We have five grandchildren. Actually, we just picked up two more. My son married into two, so we have seven. seven <laughs> you grands. know, that almost makes it sound like you're just going out somewhere and you found a couple kids and you decided to make your grandkids. But we know that's not the case. Right? Uh, well, sometimes it works that way. <laughs> <laughs> so why don't you tell us about Dragoo Adventure Rider Training and when you began? We began around 2012. Uh, the idea for it really started in 2010. Um, I was um, fortunate enough to win a place on Team USA for BMW Motorrad on their GS Trophy competition. That's an international competition that is done at uh, a different location around the world every two years, every uh, even year, and then the odd years they have the qualifiers. Uh, so in 2010, I won a place on the, on the Team USA. I competed in South Africa. And it began to draw interest among a lot of people. Uh, I was already writing for uh, motorcycle magazines. And I was invited to um, go to South America on two different occasions. And ironically, uh, neither person who invited me knew the other one or knew of the other one. But within two weeks, I was invited to go to Bolivia and to um, um, Columbia. Nice. And yeah, and that was to do a story on their um, adventure riding tour company. And uh, so I did that, did a story on, on their companies. And while in Bolivia, I was asked to come back and start teaching people to ride down there. Uh, the big bikes, they had a lot of, some of the, some of the, our clients uh, for the tour company were uh, fairly well off and they had BMWs uh, that bought them fairly recently. And there are a lot more dirt roads than paved roads in that country. And uh, it's a very poor country. A lot of, uh, even the road maintenance on the dirt roads is not good. And they were falling. They were hurting themselves. And they said, Bill, will you please come back and help us learn to ride these bikes better? Right. Well, I had developed a curriculum. That was around 2012. I had developed a curriculum in 2010 for Skip Mascoro of Moto Discovery. He was, uh, before that, Pancho Villa Tours, one of the longest running tour companies in the United States. Very well known, very well respected. And Skip had asked me to develop a training program for him. And we had been working on that, but because of logistics, uh, it just never really gelled. He was in San Antonio. I was here in Norman. The commute wasn't really practical. But I had the bones of a, um, of a curriculum. So I took those bones with me to Bolivia, and I began to, uh, to teach, and I was asked back repeatedly. And people here in Oklahoma began to say, hey, when are you going to teach here? Well, we have... Rawhide on the west coast. We had the Spartanburg Performance Center on the east coast, and then a sprinkling of other uh, dirt bike and a few at that time a few adventure riding schools were beginning to evolve uh, in the United States. And I thought, who wants to come to Oklahoma to learn to ride motorcycles? So I did uh, start have a class here. I had a handful of people in it. Uh, it was 112 degrees that day in August. Ooh. We had our first class. That's a little warm. Half of the class watched the other class, other half melt, but we had a good time and they just insisted I do it again. And I did. And that class was double the size of the previous one. And the rest is kind of history. It really took off like wildfire and wow. uh, developed a good reputation. I went on to become certified. Uh, I'm one of uh, a handful of, of instructors in the United States who is certified uh, by BMW Motorrad uh, and actually went to, he even fewer went to Hecklingen, Germany to uh, um, 
become certified as an internationally certified off-road instructor. Right. Wow. So you kind of sort of already answered this next question anyway, but let me ask it in a different way. Did you see that what you're doing is something that was needed in your area? You know, when I rode with people, I could tell that there was a, some were challenged to do the things that I did, but I never knew that what I did was anything better than anybody else. You know, I mean, I was in a, a small pond here in Norman, Oklahoma, and didn't ride with that many people. When I went out on adventure rides with others uh, out in the American West or down in Mexico or wherever it might be, I found that usually, other than a couple of really, you know, salty types, most of the people struggled to keep up, both speed and through technical terrain. So uh, I, I didn't perceive it as, oh, this is a tremendous vacuum that should be filled. I just noticed that yeah, I do this a little better than most. So when they asked me to do it, I felt like, okay, I've got something to offer. And then I went to, uh, in 2008, uh, actually had gone out to California to compete in the Rawhide Adventure Rider Challenge. Uh, that was one of Jim Hyde's uh, early competitions there. It was the second one that he actually did. And we had something approaching 100 riders out there. And um, I did it to cover a story for ADV Moto Magazine. And actually, it was a three-day event, and I won the event. In three days, I had made three errors. Had a perfect score day one. I had scored one error day two, and I scored two errors on day three, uh, leaving me at, at the top of that contest. So that helped me to feel a little bit more confident to have a credential to help people with. And I'll never forget a comment Jim Hyde made, and I felt like he did this just to puff me up. But he said that when BMW Motorrad was asking for uh, people as recommendations for contestants in the first ever uh, GS Trophy, which was held in Tunisia that first year, uh, he mentioned my name and they said, why him? And, and he kind of paused and he said, He's simply the best technical rider I've ever seen. Now, what that tells me is that Jim at that time hadn't seen very many good technical riders. <laughs> <laughs> but it felt good, and it bolstered my confidence. And when it did come around uh, a few years later to go ahead and start teaching people, not only had I practiced a lot because I had been involved in the GS Trophy competition twice at that point, in their, in their uh, qualifiers twice and won once, uh, the, the opportunity to go, then I realized, okay, yeah, I, I probably can do this uh, and not feel like I'm leading people down the wrong path. Right. Well, now, so what do you do differently from other adventure training outlets? Well, there are a lot of similarities. You know, physics is the same for all of us. The motorcycles work for the same reasons. I think that one of the things that we do is a style of communication that, or one of the things that we offer is a style of communication that is very um, non-confrontational, and not that there are a lot of confrontational ones, but we get in uh, with our students. They, they feel cared for, they feel lifted up. You know, we have a, we have a uh, mantra that says, we make the hard things easy, so, or excuse me, we make the easy things hard, so that later the hard things become easy. Right. And we, we do that by coming in beneath their skill levels, wherever they might be, and trying to gradually but steadily lift them up. Now, I won't say that that's unique to other schools. Other schools do that also, 
in their own form and fashion. And there, you know, I, I could tell you more about really good other schools that I would probably even feel comfortable telling you about ours. The, uh, we're not the only good school, but I do feel like that we have a very good one. But I think that we are a little more down home and a little more personable than some. But our mission is to, to um, goodness, what is our mission statement? <laughs> our, our mission is to make it affordable for anyone who wants to do it. To, uh, it. For anyone who wants to learn to ride these motorcycles and do it well, we provide quality off-road training at a fair price for all who wish to learn. And that's as close as I, I can get, and it's pretty close to the mission statement. And that's really how we try to keep this. We keep a very low um, infrastructure. Uh, we don't have bike rentals. In fact, um, uh, we do get calls every now and then. Most people want to learn on their own bikes. So when it's time to tone it down, winter times or off season, we tone it down. And I'm not sweating that, oh, I've got to, to advertise and have a lot of people come. Our classes are packed anyway, all the time. Yeah. So I just don't push for that. And then when people are full, uh, typically the business plan is to charge more so that you'll make more for the amount who are coming since you can only teach so many uh, and have more classes. Well, we try to expand the classes, uh, the number of classes, but I've actually reduced the class size from what they had been in previous years uh, just to have a more personal relationship with those students. Yeah. Now, tell us about the facility where you uh, do your training at. So we use a number of facilities, um, and we typically will use an off-road park or public land or where we're authorized to be there or uh, private land that the, the landowner has allowed us to be. We're creating a new venue this year. Uh, we lost uh, a venue that we were using last year that we really enjoyed uh, down near the South Canadian River, right on the shore of the South Canadian River. But uh, we have an individual here who has some property that, uh, and equipment that is going to help us work on our level one and two classes. So that will be about, um, oh gosh, it's 12 minutes from my home here in Norman, Oklahoma. Right. And it's, you know, the facilities don't have to be fancy. We try to use natural terrain as much as we can, but we build uh, elements whenever we need to. And then we have a couple of venues that are farther away. Um, at uh, Crossroad or Crossbar Ranch, which is in the Arbuckle Mountains, the Arbuckles are about 500,000, 500 million years old, and uh, some of the oldest mountains in the world. So they're very worn out. Um, they're they're not super super rugged from a uh, you know like the uh, the Rockies or the Andes or you know something, but it, as low as they are, they have plenty of challenging uh, creeks and hollers and. Uh, bottomlands and hills and things that we can work on and then we have a sandy area called soggy bottom and both uh, crossbar ranch and soggy bottom are about an hour from my home easy access soggy bottom is just a super uh it, it's a challenging river area challenging deep sand like deep sand so our level three classes are rocks and sand and we use one venue one day and another venue the other day Wow. So those are some, some of our venues. We have a motocross park, Oklahoma Motorsports Complex here in Norman that we use uh, for a lot of our level one and two classes also. So, uh, you know, the venue is kind of secondary. We want it to be adequate and they're, they're always adequate, but we don't build a lot there. It's yeah. just for us. Now, the, the Arbuckle Mountains where you were just telling us about, mm -hmm. what kind of uh, elevation are we talking about here? Oh, you know, Norman is uh, 1,100 square, uh, 1100 feet above sea level. 
and the Arbuckles might go up to uh, 1,500 and start lower. So okay. there, there's not a whole lot of elevation change like you know the the, the newer taller mountains. Uh, they're beautiful. I mean, yeah. uh, it's 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 a, a beautiful area to work. And Crossbar is 6,500 acres, so we have a, a tremendous playground down there. Much more. Oh, so that's how big. So it's 6,500 acres of land that you're able to ride around on within the Arbuckle Mountains. It, that's wow. a lot. Wow. You can sit. And that, uh, you know, a good venue, Rawhide, for example, I think their basic uh, property is about 160 acres. Um, and then they've got adjacent land that uh, they are able to use to expand out into. Mm-hmm. So you can do a lot with a little. Wow. Okay, that's pretty easy. So you know, what should a potential student, somebody like myself who's never done any adventure riding, has been all, I've been off-road before, but what, what should the, the potential student or rider be prepared for and expect from one of your classes? Yeah, that's a question I get all the time because people are, it's almost like a stage fright. People seem intimidated. Uh, you know, we have, we have a group, uh, the Christian Motorcycle Association uh, is reserving my skills for uh, a, a special custom class coming up uh, in May. I'm actually meeting with two of them. They're a state coordinator from Texas and state coordinator from Oklahoma tomorrow at lunch. They're coming up here to talk more about what we're going to be doing. But they're bringing a small group up to learn. And these guys all ride cruisers. And they're older. And some are, are relatively fit. A lot of ex-police officers and, and a lot of military in there. But uh, some are not. And they're concerned. And they want to know, what, what am I going to get myself into here? But they have a passion for doing something more, for continuing beyond where that road ends. And hence, the, the adventure motorcycling is a perfect fit. Well, our level one and two classes, level one is what we call flat work. So we are dealing with, uh, yeah, I'll tell you, golf courses make great places for level one and two. It's frowned upon. <laughs> <We don't, laughs> I can imagine it would be. <laughs> and, we, and we don't actually do that, although I would love to, if somebody would ever allow me. The greens especially. But we really, we want relatively smooth ground so that the, um, the things that we do are noticed and we aren't uh, feeling the ground induce a change in the motorcycle. We want the, the balance and control to be ours and not to be upset by uh, hitting a rut or off camber or slippery or muddy surfaces or something like that. So level one is all flat work and we teach body position, peg weight, turns, uh, you know, what happens when you turn a motorcycle, you're standing and you simply stand on one foot peg or the other. I mean, everybody can imagine, sure, it's going to turn right or turn left, but few people can imagine how actually critical it is to have that skill down, the nuance of a little pressure here and a little bit of counter pressure there. Uh, we, we typically just turn the bars enough that they will agree with what we're asking the motorcycle to do with body position and, and pressure on the foot pegs. Clutch brake throttle, kind of that triage, um, sort of a, a form of police motorcycle training. Um, using the clutch and the and the, um, the the clutch is married to the throttle. The clutch is nothing without the throttle. So we use the clutch throttle against the brake, putting the bike in tension. Uh, it's like it's trying to pull itself apart when you're riding the, the brake, and particularly the rear brake, uh, against the clutch and the throttle pulling it forward. That creates a, um, a stability that's incredible. And when people first experiment with that and experience that, they're they're amazed at how slow they can go and be able to keep the bike upright and not have to put their feet down. So there are a number of drills that are done in level one 
to just achieve some level of mastery with those skills. And then we move to level two. So level two starts the afternoon of day one and continues throughout day two. Level two is where you begin to have elevation changes. So we have side hills, uphills, downhills. Um, you know, the side hills would be off camber. Uh, sometimes we'll introduce ruts in that. We do hill fail recoveries where there's an attempt to climb a hill. You may not be successful and you would deliberately stall the motorcycle, reverse it and head back down or back the bike straight back down uh, using the clutch as your brake rather than trying to keep a foot up when you might be imbalanced and lose that foot and the front brake won't hold the bike on a steep hill, if it's, especially if it's shale or hard pack or something, and it's, the bike will just slide backwards and people get out of control and panic. So once they've experienced that and, and done it a few times in practice, the confidence builds really, really quickly. Uh, loose hill starts. We, uh, we have uh, some acronyms and uh, phrases. One is called uh, dance with the girl what brung you. So it's a colloquialism, <laughs> <laughs> colloquialism from Oklahoma. Say, what do you mean? Dance with the girl out bringing. So the amount of clutch and throttle that we use to continue moving once we start moving on a, a loose hill is enough. Typically, if someone stalls on a, on, a, on a hillside and they try to get going again, they rev the motor and dump the clutch. Rev the motor and dump the clutch. And they might stall the bike or spin, losing control of the bike. So we teach them to do a little rock and roll uh, maneuver. And they rock it once, rock it twice, kind of like rocking an old pickup truck out of the mud. On the third rock, they stand up on the foot pegs, and now they're fully under control with their body in the proper position, and they simply slowly feed that clutch out. And then if they do it well, they made brownies. <laughs> so the, the brownies are the imprint of the knobby tires in the dirt, the loamy soil on the ground. So if you spin the tire, uh, it's kind of like the, the kid threw the basketball while you just made a pan of brownies and pulled them out of the oven and it landed in the brownies, you know, <laughs> you get a skid mark across the brownies. Instead, we want to make those de defined marks. So the whole story there is, if you dance with the girl what brung you and you do the rock and roll, you get brownies. Now, that, those can be euphemisms any way you want to put them, but, uh, but they work. Wow, that's pretty interesting. So, so it's just so there's just two phases to the the training then correct there there are two phases to level one two and that's flat work and hills okay level level three is another class and I'll assure you after two days of level one and two your mind is full and your body is tired now we do have a lot of people who will stay because I do run the uh, level one two and the level three back to back on many occasions by request um, because people come from a long ways. I have people yeah. come as far as Nantucket, Massachusetts, uh, you know, all over the, the Western United States, South Texas, uh, up to, uh, you know, the Canadian border. Wow. So, so, um, when people come, a lot of people want to maximize the benefit from their trip. <clears throat> they'll take the level one and two, and then they'll roll right into level three. Once in a while, someone realizes they have done too much because there they're, can be fatigued after this. Oh, sure. I can imagine that. Yeah. It depends more on their fear factor than it does on their physical conditioning. Uh, I had a gentleman here from Kansas last year. This was the single most challenging student that I have dealt with to date and a, a super nice fella and a, a professional in his field, a triathlete. Wow. And, and on a 78 degree day, by 
lunchtime of day one, his riding suit was literally soaked through. When he sat on his seat, it looked like a sponge had been on his seat. Uh, his back was soaked through, his chest was soaked through, and he, he was white knuckled and could not relax. And he had already taken another class, and I, I felt bad for this man. Um, it was a, it was not a pleasant experience for him. You know, that cracks me up because uh, a guy who's a triathlete should know that hydration and proper nutrition during, before and during the event will carry you through. But he must have stressed himself tr- dramatically for that. And he was doing all the right things. We were stopping for snack breaks. He was hydrating, had a hydration bladder on his back, I believe and used it. Um, it was not conditioning. He was an active uh, 54-year-old triathlete, but it, the stress, he could not relax. But his first, his first words to me, and it was a private class, his first words to me when we met here at my home, at my dining room uh, table, were, you can't get me hurt. And because of his field, he wasn't, uh, and he felt like it was, it was just critical that he not get hurt. And I understood that. Yeah, yeah. And I explained that we would do our best not to, but that it was that, that really that ball was in his court. Oh. You know, uh, he chose to ride motorcycles, which are inherently dangerous. Uh, we, we mitigate the challenges, the dangers as much as we possibly can, but things happen and I can't reach his controls from where I am. Of course not. So it's, uh, it's up to him. And the opposite of that is I have had people come in, you know, women and men come in who were just absolute desk jockeys and they laughed their way through the entire class and just had a ball, just had an absolute ball. Perfect. I wonder how how many people come through your class not realizing that balance is probably the number one key feature of the things that they need to know. Well, we profess that there are four cornerstones to successful adventure riding. Those cornerstones are balance, <laughs> control, judgment, and attitude. Right. So balance being that uh, natural tendency that we have to remain upright after we let go of the coffee table when we were somewhere around 6 to 18 months old and learning to take those first steps. Control is the ability to, in, in our case, the ability to use the controls of the motorcycle to maintain, wait for it, balance. So we use the controls so that we can regain our balance if we begin to use it, or so that we can preempt a loss of balance if we're going into an off-camber situation by applying pressure to one foot peg or the other and moving our body accordingly, Uh, um, easing the clutch out to bring us up from a turn, pulling the clutch in and applying brake to drop us down into a turn more. So balance and control, judgment. Uh, and I'll hold up my, my hand and making a J, kind of reversing my hand and making a J, we call that the J factor. And there are stories on my website about the J factor and when it wasn't used typically by me. Um, and judgment being that that tells us to go ahead and try what's, what, what you see and what you're being asked to do because you've seen others do it successfully. You were trained to do that. So odds are that you can do that as well, have that confidence, but also judgment tells us maybe we shouldn't because we are talking ourselves down to the point that it might not be a good idea, or we saw someone else fail, or we have not crossed this river before, we can't see how deep it is, or we know we're not good in rocks, and yet here is a long stretch of rocks, so if we go, we need to go very gingerly through this and maybe even get help to get through. Um, So judgment 
it permeates everything that we do. And then the last and probably, I would argue, the most critical factor and the most uh, beneficial uh, cornerstone that we can implement as adventure riders is attitude. And our attitude is what says, uh, hey, I, I've fallen and I, I've dented my fuel tank and my wrist hurts and now I'm mad because my fuel tank is dented. And we can start this downward spiral that will, will leave us in a worse position than even with the injury and the damage on our bike. Yeah, yeah. And by the same token, attitude can be that a friend in a group can walk up to that injured rider, lay a hand on his shoulder and say, hey, I know this stinks. You, you dented your bike. I know your wrist hurts. It might even be broken. I get that. But we're going to get you out of here. We're going to get you home. And think of the stories you have to tell when, we, when you get there. Right. And that's what adventure riding does for us is it puts us in a position where we don't often put ourselves. We seldom take ourselves to the edge of our comfort zone and then beyond. Um, people want to think about doing that, but we want to watch movies about that. There are certainly a lot of people who like to do that, but some of us have trouble broaching that wall to actually go out there and do it. Right. And so the attitude is a, is a huge thing and training. Once you have a, a, a achieved some level of training, it's amazing how fast you grow as opposed to the common mantra that says, just buy gas. That's your best training tool. Go out and ride your motorcycle. You cannot practice mistakes enough to get good at anything but making mistakes. Yeah. And if you happen to be a shooter, then uh, uh, something that I heard someone, one of my instructors say one time is, Bill, you can't miss fast enough to win a gunfight. So uh, <laughs> practicing, practicing harder, practicing faster, practicing in worse and worse terrain will probably not improve our riding significantly. Yes, practice will get you better, and putting yourself in those situations will get you better, but it can be very expensive, and it can be very painful yeah. to do that. Oh, yeah. Whereas in two days training, then you can learn a lifetime of uh, skills and uh, what would you call it, technical elements that you can work on on your own that can just lift your riding to a whole new level. Oh, sure. Now, everything you, I, I mentioned that, and I brought that balance thing up uh, simply because I equate many of the things that happen uh, as a mountain biker, which I am, that are very similar. The judgment, the control, uh, the balance, and the attitude. All of those things, are the, if you have to have those things and you have to be able to properly apply them, or you can end up finding yourself in a very bad situation. And the same holds true with mountain biking as it does with adventure riding. So there's just kind of like an even plane there because it's basically the same kind of thing, except one has a motor and one doesn't. I love when mountain bikers come and take my class. Um, I was president of the Bicycle League of Norman, so our hometown oh, nice. bicycle club uh, back a few years ago. And I raced mountain bikes and uh, in our little local uh, you know, uh, um, community around here. And we had a contest, a, a tour, de, tour de dirt, they called it, like the Tour de France, the yeah. Tour de dirt. So it was an Oklahoma State Championship contest, which I, I won. I won it two years in a row. But uh, so I enjoyed mountain biking. I rode a Moots, by the way. You may be familiar with the yes, Moots. Yes, I am. They, uh, yeah, titanium bike built in Steamboat yep. Springs. And um, uh, there's a lot of crossover between mountain biking and motorcycles. The, uh, certainly the, the mountain bikes are a lot easier to pick up 
you go over the handlebars more often on a mountain bike. But uh, <laughs> but the uh, uh, although I'm close at times on the on the bikes, but uh, not I don't crash that much really, not anymore. I, I have had my my magnificent crashes, but uh, uh, not often, fortunately. Yeah. But uh, yeah, the balance is critical, and you know track stands on a mountain bike are so fun. And when you when you get really good at it, you can do a one-handed track stand and talk and wave and all this uh, from that that position. Now I can't do a one-handed track stand on a motorcycle and talk and wave, but I win a lot of slow races, and I would uh, attribute a lot of it to my mountain biking uh, skills yeah. and experience, as well as trials. You know, old, uh, an old trial sure. rider, especially the uh, when you have to do low-speed maneuvers through tight technical terrain. That mountain bike training comes in wonderfully in that situation. One of my instructors uh, currently uh, races mountain bikes, and uh, he's expert level. And um, you know, it's great because of the fitness for him. You know, and as as a an assistant to me, he does a lot of picking up motorcycles, uh, jogging over to help a student that's fallen, whatever. And, uh, you know, he goes, Todd goes on and on and on and on. And um, it's uh, it's great. He's the ever-ready bunny. And his mountain biking keeps him that way. Perfect. So now, does the new student need to have their own adventure bike to take your class? No. Uh, many of them borrow bikes from friends and that sort of thing. I don't rent motorcycles here. Um, there are some good, really good schools that do. And uh, if anybody needed any East Coast, West Coast, uh, North, wherever, uh, I can I can make recommendations. I have several friends who do this uh, and have bike rentals. But um, some of the places, the, the folks that I work with on immersion tours, which this is kind of we're segueing into another area now. Uh, I work with a lot of tour companies, uh, Colorado Motorcycle Adventures, Moto Vermont, Moto Discovery, uh, and others. Uh, who do have motorcycles for rent. And so a lot of people will fly to South Dakota or Colorado or Utah or New Mexico um, to take my training. They'll rent the motorcycle from the entity that is hosting the uh, training and the tour. And we'll do a day or two of training. And then we continue an element of training along the way as we travel for multiple days uh, through a, a backcountry discovery route, uh, or oh, nice. uh, those are nice things. routes. I love the BDRs. If if your listeners are not familiar with the BDRs, whatever method they use to go off road, they can enjoy the BDRs. In particular, motorized travel, of course. But uh, my wife and I um, are adventure uh, drivers as well, uh, and journalists for uh, truck magazines, a number of different truck magazines. So we have a, a thoroughly built forerunner, and we've traveled some of the backcountry discovery routes in our forerunner. Really? Uh, oh yeah, yeah. And they're so fun because you've got maps already created. Butler Maps yep. uh, uh, creates a map for each BDR. They're about fifteen bucks. I mean, for and they're a super durable, waterproof map with tremendous information and only pertinent information. They're not all muddled up with a lot of stuff you don't need. But gas, camping, elevations, distance betweens. Uh, river crossings, areas that are, are typically challenging in adverse weather, uh, and on and on. Uh, section descriptions, historical and um, uh, geographical features of interest, all of these are on the maps. The BDRs, each BDR, uh, Backcountry Discovery Route, also has a feature-length video that you can purchase, yep. again, about, about 15 bucks or so to watch. I've watched them all. And, 
Yeah, <laughs> so you know they're great. And then there's a there's a teaser. You can watch just the trailer of each BDR. And then they have a website that has uh, routinely updated information on them as well. Wow. And they're great places to practice uh, uh, your skills and to learn new skills and to ride with people who uh, can help you to improve. Wow. So, well, I want to I talk more about that in a moment. But uh, in the end, after all done, what will the graduating rider ride away from uh, with from your training classes? Well, they will right away with a certificate <laughs> saying okay. that they had completed uh, DART level whatever, one, two, DART level three, DART immersion tour, uh, DART custom class, DART private training, uh, DART instructor, um, police training. I've done police training with the Fort Worth Police Department. Uh, so whatever it might be, they do come, they do have a nice certificate that has our Adventure Man logo on it, uh, a graphic design done by my friend Adam Stevens, a tremendous graphic artist. So, um, that's that's probably their most prized possession, and probably the one that's worth the most. Okay. But they also they also got to uh, to learn things they never would have learned. Uh, there has not been a student leave my class that hasn't said, "I learned more than I ever would have imagined." And this includes expert level enduro riders, racers who have come in to transition to big bikes. So these guys are quite good at what they do, but their their recent uh, converts to the adventure series. Sure. And so they realized fairly quickly that kinetic energy does a lot of, of bad things with you when you start moving five or 600 pounds in the same way that you were moving your 220 pound uh, woods racer before. So the nuances that they learn, uh, the skills there are extremely valuable and, um, and so inexpensive. I mean, they're less than the price of a, hel- of a good helmet for that two days of training. All right, so the training is, I was going to ask you the next question. This is going to be, is, so the training for the level one and level two, that's a, that's a two-day course then? That's correct. And then the level three would be the third day? Level three is another two-day course. Another two-day course, okay. Yeah, so it's rocks and sand. So day one of level three is uh, rocks. Day two of level three is sand. Oh, okay. So if somebody wanted to come in and do all three, they're going to do a four-day course. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. And... Can I ask you how much would this cost a person? Of course. So the the standard classes are four ninety five per student per class. So a level one and two is four hundred ninety five dollars. Uh, a level three is four hundred ninety five dollars. So each of those covers the two days, and we've interjected a shop day in between those. So you actually uh, are here five days. Oh, okay. The shop day has helped us mitigate some of the fatigue but from the level one and two sure. that people yeah. need to recover from for level three. Not everyone does. Uh, a lot of people are so, I mean, they're just charged up after one and two. They're ready yeah, to yeah. Roll. But uh, some need a, a little bit of downtime, a couple of Advil and a, and a margarita, <laughs> and, uh, and then they're ready to go for level three. And uh, so the, the shop day on the in-between day is just a half a day session that we do that uh, allows us to make any adjustments on their motorcycles, um, or to install maybe a set of bar risers or hand guards. Or a lot of people don't know how to adjust the chains, fix the flat, uh, repair a busted engine case, right. uh, some of the things that, that are necessary on the trail side. Okay. Now, what does a, a typical person have to do about lodging Is that and food? Is that their own responsibility? No, the meals are included, or excuse me, lunches are included in our, our uh, regular curriculum classes. And um, dinner, of course, is on the, on the uh, students, as, of course, the breakfast would sure. be. Lodging is on them. 
And Norman is a is a really inexpensive place for lodging too. We're we're okay. uh, it's pretty easy. And a lot of people camp. You know, some choose to camp, especially at Crossbar Ranch. It's a, a beautiful place to camp, and they have facilities. Uh, Lake Thunderbird nearby has uh, places to camp. So, you know, I tell people this is not about how tough you are, or about how rugged you can make an experience. Come here for the training and find a way to get a shower at night and uh, you know a good rest, and then come the next day super ready to, to train. Okay, when does your season training season start? We will well actually I will be in Tucson later this month towards the end of the month uh, for a um, uh, it's the motorcycle relief project. It's a uh, uh, it's for soldiers who have various uh, issues concerns um, after active duty and they are wanting to learn to ride motorcycles. They right. some you know, choose other skills. So I'll be working with a group out there. Um, in Tucson late this month and going into to, to, uh, March. And then the latter part of March, we actually kick off here in Oklahoma with our level one and two classes and level three classes. All right. And that runs until when? We run through about late June, typically. And then I stop the regular sessions because it gets hot and humid here. Now, I have some, some people who are very hardcore and they want to train anyway. For example, I have a group... Uh, the IMR, the Indian Motorcycle Riders, out of uh, the Dallas-Fort Worth area, these uh, from India, as you might guess. Um, I, I remember the first group of them that I uh, spoke with, and uh, they said, hey, we want to train in August. I said, well, guys, it's really, really hot. They wanted to train at a venue down on the Red River uh, between Oklahoma and Texas. And I said, well, it's going to be really, really hot. And there was a pause, and then uh, the fellow came back on with me and said, Bill, we're from India. And I said, oh, yeah, okay, it's hot over there. <laughs> well, we, we, we fried them anyway uh, on those two days, but we had a great time, and they have become some of our, our best uh, students since then. They've come back on a regular basis just o- over and over again. Uh, so we do a lot of uh, private and, and uh, custom classes, though, in July and August, and then we also start moving north. We work in Colorado, Utah, uh, South Dakota, um, we'll do some stuff in Ohio, the Wayland Wayne weekend, Chad Warner. I don't know if you happen to know Chad by chance. Nope. He's a fellow, he's a fellow you should have on the show. Chad Warner is fantastic, uh, in the adventure writing community. He's a, uh, he's, I believe it was a Navy SEAL or a Ranger. I believe it's a Navy SEAL, but uh, super guy, uh, gives back a lot to the, uh, the motorcycling community does Wayland Wayne weekend. So I send two instructors up to work with him each year. And then we do, um, uh, America, which I'm sure you're familiar yeah, with. Yeah, it's been there. Yeah, so uh, Christian Dutcher has invited us back for the past several years to do their Dirt Days yep. training. And so Dart has run that uh, for, I believe it's three years. Uh, I think we're coming up on our fourth yeah, year. Yeah, this is the third, the third, yeah, it's fourth year coming up, yes. Yeah, and um, so that, that's been a real good event for us, and that's usually done during those hotter months. Uh, and then uh, Overland Expo. Uh, we do all the training for Overland Expo nice. and have for the, for the past three or four years, I guess, now. Uh, we took that over from another uh, big organization that did it, and uh, I think they did a great job with it also. But, uh, you know, it was probably just time for a change. So uh, we're, we're a lot of places during those off months doing other work. And then when it gets back to late September, we usually pick it back up in Oklahoma and run through late October, occasionally nipping into November. I think we nipped into November just a little bit this year, uh, still with some custom classes. Oh, there you go. 
All right. Well, that's great. It sounds like wonderful classes. That's something anybody who's interested in getting into uh, adventure riding should take advantage of. Uh, let's talk about some of the things you've done. You've got a lot of interesting videos on your website. So why don't you tell us where you've ridden? Well, I've ridden on five continents. Um, and my, the majority of my riding, though, has been United States, uh, Mexico, and South America. So, uh, and I'm not really a world traveler. I mean, I know five continents, oh, that sounds impressive. But no, there, I know world travelers. Uh, and I know enough not to put myself in that category. I've just been fortunate enough to be invited to certain places that I've gone and, and ridden. So, um, you know, I've traveled to Mexico several times and uh, with motor discovery, with just private groups of friends. And I have a trip coming up uh, actually in April with um, um, West 38 Moto, my friend Dusty Wessels, who also teaches out in, he's out in Colorado. So we're going to do a collaboration in Baja. And I love to ride in South America. I love Bolivia. I love uh, Colombia. But I must tell you, my favorite place to ride in the entire world is the American West. Really? I just, lo I just love the American West. We are so blessed here in the United States to have the resources that we have, the terrain that we have. Um, it's easy. I mean, you, you know, everyone speaks the language, uh, although that language hasn't been a problem even in the South American and uh, uh, Mexico places that I've ridden. Because there people, they want to help you. I mean, people across the world, they, they understand what it's like to be a traveler or to host a traveler or both. Yeah. And they're very good hosts. And everybody needs the same thing. They all need to go to the bathroom. They need to eat. They need gasoline. Occasionally need a tire or a, a repair. And they're, with, with almost no exceptions, that has been good. So I don't have anything bad to say about riding in Colombia or riding in Bolivia uh, uh, some great tour companies down there that I love riding with, but it's just easy to ride out here. And if you're wanting magnificent night skies, beautiful sunrises, sunsets, terrain to die for, uh, we have it here currently, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to keep it for a, a few generations more. Let's hope. How many of the BDRs have you ridden? Uh, let's see. Gosh, there are a lot. Now, I have not ridden any of the eastern ones, the uh, Mid-Atlantic or the uh, Northeast, but I've ridden, uh, I've driven California, did that in the Forerunner. We did a story on that in uh, Outdoor by Four magazine. And then uh, I've ridden Utah, Arizona, Colorado, um, let's see, Idaho, and I think that's it. So five or six of them. Oh wow! Out, out in the west, yeah. Now, Idaho is their, isn't there? That's their longest one, isn't it? Or is it? It is. Yeah. It, it is. It is. I believe. I'm, I don't think the Mid Atlantic is longer, but uh, Idaho is fourteen hundred and fifty miles, I believe, by design. Yeah, you can go farther. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you can. Yeah. I, I, actually, actually, I think the Northeast might even be longer than that. Well, you know, it might be. Here again, I have not ridden that one yet or analyzed it. My friend Jocelyn Snow has ridden that one, and uh, yeah. Another good one for your show, by the way, Jocelyn Stowe, five foot one and a half, 100, 120 pound female who is who just kills it on the big bikes. Wow, that's pretty cool. So I'm, I'm going to check that out. I have to look into that a little bit. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about your some of the publications and awards that you have? Well, awards. Uh, as far as writing awards, I have never sought a writing award. 
Um, I have friends who have, who are, you know, fairly prolific also. And there is a, there's kind of a, it's sort of a culture, I think, to seek that. Sure. And, and it's cool because you can't do it. I mean, it's not a joke. You know, you're competing against a lot of other people who are also good. So I don't seek writing awards so much. Uh, I just like to write when it's pertinent, when it's uh, uh, going to be interesting to a reader. I want to make the reader uh, feel what I feel when I'm in the saddle of that motorcycle. Right. So I, I have a lot of columns uh, both in Roadrunner Magazine, my sidetracked columns ran for two or three years, I guess. Uh, they were pretty descriptive, short bursts of uh, interesting stories, uh, typically situations that I had encountered uh, while on a motorcycle. And then a lot of interpersonal stuff in the uh, in the in uh, those columns is also, and I've done a number of feature articles for them. Uh, Ride Texas Magazine, I currently maintain dart tips, and that's a teaching uh, tool uh, if you will, for, uh, um, readers and each dart tip breaks out, uh, some element of riding a motorcycle off road, an adventure motorcycle off road. Uh, but no particular accolades. I just hear from a lot of people who say, I really enjoyed that. I purchased that magazine because of your column in there and that, um, riding. Uh, I mean, in the old days I was a trials rider. I was almost always on the podium in trials on an amateur level. I never competed on an expert level. Right. Um, in uh, motocross, I was almost, I raced expert, and I was almost always on the podium there. I was uh, third in our state championship series one year, which is high as I, I was there. But I moved on from motocross fairly quickly and got into aircraft mechanics, uh, became a flight instructor and did other things that uh, took me away from that, so I didn't really progress there. Uh, once I got back into adventure riding, uh, as I, I mentioned earlier in the, our discussion today, uh, I competed at the Adventure Rider Challenge with Rawhide uh, back in 2008 and won that event. So that was a big win. And then winning a place uh, on Team USA, uh, competing for that was uh, that was huge for me. That was something that uh, to imagine myself as uh, you know what I always consider an amateur rider. Um, competing for my country in an international competition against you know 13 countries uh, that was a was quite wow. a, a check mark for me so those are some of the accolades I think that uh, you know if that's you impressive put them out there that's very but, impressive yeah yeah I think it is yeah. um, by the way um, the northeast BDR is 1300 miles the Idaho BDR is 1250 1250 okay okay so, well, it's only 50 wonder- miles shorter yeah, and I don't know where I, where I got 1450, so uh, maybe it's been shortened or my, my memory has been shortened. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so why don't you tell our listeners how they can learn more about you and about DART. Well, uh, buildragoo.com is my website, and um, you know there are several places to uh, on the menu there to learn about me. There's a, an About Bill section. There are a number of videos and podcasts there that I've been involved in. Um, under publications, there are a lot of my stories. So, uh, and they go back, they go back pretty far. Uh, one in particular and one of my favorite, well, I'll tell you two favorite stories under publications on buildragoo.com. One is Honey, We Need to Talk. That's a column. And, uh, the, uh, the graphic design there, the caricature has a face that's very familiar to me because I wake up with it every morning. Not my own. It's my wife. And she looks very stern and angry, and she wants to talk about a ride that we were involved in at that moment. 
So, uh, honey, we need to talk. And then, um, uh, and a lot can be learned through those through those columns. But also, are you a real adventure writer? Uh, that's a story that I wrote uh, based on a question by Tiger Woods' first golf coach. His name is Rudy Duran. He wrote a book called There is a Tiger in Every Kid. And Rudy was a friend of ours. We went to church together, uh, Rudy and his wife Beth and Susan and I. And uh, sitting at brunch one day, he said, Bill, tell me about this adventure riding thing that you do. Uh, what is it? What does it mean? And what's the difference in those motorcycles and uh, a Harley Davidson or something? And so I said, Rudy, you, you, you know, when someone like you asked me a question like this, it's going to take me a minute to answer. And it took me about uh, 2,800 words to answer that. <laughs> and uh, so that, that article, Are You a Real Adventure Rider, answers that. And it uses three caricatures in it, three drawings that I had never, I had never used drawings before in a story. One was uh, um, a fellow named George Wyman, uh, who was in 1903, yeah, wrote a yeah, very familiar with it. California motor cycle across the United States, uh, set the first transatlantic crossing of, uh, or transcontinental crossing of the United States uh, by motor vehicle before even a car. Uh, the other caricature was this Adventure Man logo. All of these were done by my friend Adam Stevens, the uh, graphic designer. But uh, he, um, he drew me um, a picture of this Adventure Man who is this uh, cowboy-looking character, steely glasses, big square jaw, star on his chest, gun on his hip, little cheroot cigar sticking out of his teeth just the uh you know the quintessential adventure man and riding this big monster of a motorcycle and then the third caricature was lois price who had uh rode a uh xt225 yamaha from the arctic circle to tierra del fuego and made it a lark and she's just this little red-headed cute brit woman who um is just as fun as she can possibly be to see talk to or to interact with in any way you can so um those are some things you can learn more about, uh, more about adventure writing than me. I'm not that interesting, but there's a lot of interesting stuff on the uh, on the website there. Okay. One more question I wanted to ask you about your classes, and I neglected to ask you earlier. If somebody shows up with their own motorcycle, does it matter? Does it have to be an adventure bike? Have you ever had anybody show up with a Scrambler? Oh, yeah. In fact, Scrambler by name, uh, the Ducati Scrambler. Uh, they've shown up with and other versions of the Scrambler, side pipe bikes, uh, S model BMW, uh, had a couple of those in. They're not ideal, but in level one and two, you can get away with it because the terrain is not particularly challenging or damaging on the bike. It's, we challenge the rider and their skills. Uh, we don't put them on terrain that is likely to injure them or tear up their motorcycles. There you go. Any last comments you'd like to share about adventure riding and the training for it? Absolutely. And this occurred to me in the course of our discussion. This is a brand new thing that's, uh, that's just happening that anyone who is interested in adventure riding should check out. And it will be coming up on my Facebook page, uh, which is easy to find, Bill Dragoo. Uh, but uh, Brett Tax, who owns PSSOR, Pacific Sound Safety, excuse me, Puget Sound Safety Off-Road in uh, Washington, uh, tremendous instructor, one of the longest running uh, off-road schools or rider schools in the United States. Uh, he has come up with an adventure rider rating system. Now, as a school or a tour company or even a leader of a group ride, we, we would like to be able to evaluate, to vet riders, 
before we take them into challenging terrain. Let's say we were, we're going to take a group of riders over the Colorado BDR. Then we might ask riders, well, how good are you? And, oh, I'm a three on a five scale. Okay, well, you should be able to do the BDR. What do we really learn about that rider? Nothing, Nothing. because we don't know what, they, what type of riders or terrain they have encountered in the past. Well, Brett has come up with a rider, uh, an adventure rider skills evaluation process, and this is an online link. It is currently active, and uh, you can look up Brett Tack, B-R-E-T-T-K-A-C-S, um, and then look up adventure rider skills uh, evaluation and or skills or system but you will find that and take a minute to familiarize yourself with that and then you can assess yourself on five different levels of terrain different classifications of terrain as a novice a transitional or a proficient rider and whichever classification of terrain you are proficient at will help determine a standard for your rider skill level and you can use that to help measure yourself against others for a class to join or for a ride to do with others. It's a, I think it's a very important tool. I've never seen anything like it. I'm doing a story on it right now for Overland Journal. Submitted it this morning, actually, no. Overland Journal. Yeah. So. And how, how long before you get your results back? Oh, you do it yourself. It's oh. a self-evaluation. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Perfect. So, yeah, there are videos to depict terrain. There are pictures that also depict terrain. And this is a breathing document. It'll be updated uh, as there, there, he has a, um, a committee, if you will, uh, a group of what he calls ex experts or professionals uh, to help him design and evaluate this. I am one. Sean Thomas is one. He has a few uh, intermediate to amateur level writers who also contribute to um, uh, ideas and updates on this. So it's, it's a great, as I said, it's a great system. I was excited about it, but after just writing a story about it, I guess I have to be. <laughs> Excellent. Bill, I want to thank you very much for joining me here on the podcast and telling us about DART, Dragoo Adventure Rider Training. It's excellent. I really enjoyed your conversation, and I hope many listeners get the same joy out of it as I did. Ted, thanks for having me on. It really was a joy, and I appreciate it. Wish you the best. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you for joining me and Bill here on the Motorcycle Man Podcast. This has been a conversation with Bill Dragoo. Links to all of Bill's sites will be in the show notes and, of course, on the Motorcycle Men website. The Motorcycle Men Podcast is supporting David's Dream and Believe Cancer Foundation. So go to davidsdreamandbelieving.org. The Motorcycle Man Podcast is supporting David's Dream and Believe Cancer Foundation, so go to davidsdreamandbelieve.org to donate and contribute where the money goes where it's needed. And the Gold Star Riding Foundation, helping families of fallen soldiers. If you would like to be a part of a great cause and get some heartfelt miles in, go to goldstarride.org and learn how you can participate in the next Gold Star Ride. Don't forget to go over to Motorcycle Men YouTube channel. Watch some of the many videos we have there, including the Ted Shed and the Ride with Ted videos. Things are changing very soon, so better keep an eye out. And for the rest of the Motorcycle Men team, thank you for listening. And remember, we say stupid crap so you don't have to. Ride safely, kids.